This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. For we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument in righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please do be seated. Uh, this is just a little loud, so if the sound guys just give me a little less, I think that would be great. Now, just this week... We've seen yet another media story about boys from an elite private school in Sydney behaving badly. Now, why is this a story? Apart from the usual tall poppy syndrome, the story, I think, exposes the complacency and shallowness of the moral culture of the North Shore and the eastern suburbs of Sydney. We do genuinely think that human beings will do the right thing if only they are educated in the right way. And so that's what the shock of the story says. We're shocked. Boys from elite private schools sin. But these stories reveal that our faith in education to change human nature is a sham. It shows that instilling a quarter of a million dollars worth of supposedly Christian values into someone won't make any difference at all if they haven't got a changed heart. The gospel of middle-class Australia says that human beings have choices to do good or to do bad, and that with enough education and self-discipline, we'll do good and become acceptable to our community 
and also acceptable to God, although he's become something of an optional extra. Now, this is basically what the American sociologist, a guy called Chris, Christian Smith, calls moral therapeutic deism. You see, I've written that down on the, or the uh, sermon outline, moral therapeutic deism. And he's using this as a description of the actual religion of the post-Christian Western culture. And the creed of moral therapeutic deism has only four points. We've just said the, the Christian creed. This is the creed of moral therapeutic deism. Firstly, God wants people to be nice, good, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and in most of the world's religions. That's the first one. Secondly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. So that's there you've got the moral and you've got the therapeutic. You've got uh, be nice, and also the point of that is to feel good about oneself and to be happy. Thirdly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And that's the deism part of it. That is, it's a belief in God, but a God is watching us from a distance. You may have heard that in a song. And lastly, the result of this is that good people go to heaven when they die. God wants people to be good. The central goal of life is to be happy. God does not need to be particularly involved. And good people go to heaven when they die. Now, if you've been reading Paul's letter to the Romans, you'll have realised that the problem with moral therapeutic deism is twofold. Firstly, it isn't true. And secondly, it doesn't work. They're pretty significant problems, aren't they, for any system? And the gospel of grace, God's grace in Jesus Christ, completely exposes it and destroys it. Quite apart from the pathetic picture of God that it holds up, it fails because, as we've heard from Romans, there are no good people and because it can't make people good. Because its aim is to make us feel good, it reduces sin to a trivial problem and reduces redemption to something we can achieve if we're nice enough or try hard enough. What have we heard instead? Paul has said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one. He's also said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, that's not the end of the story, For by the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for us on the cross, we have been justified, not because of the things we've done, not because of our niceness or in our inherent goodness or some myth like that, but by God's grace, not while we were his friends, but even while we were his enemies. There are no good people, but by the miracle of grace, there are justified people. Only bad people go to heaven by grace. Only bad people go to heaven by grace. Now, I've probably told you, you probably remember this story. I've told it before. My uncle, who's also a minister, he once was giving a talk. The title of the talk was, Only Bad People Go to Heaven. So he put that on the, and in those days you didn't print things yourself, he sent it off to the printer and it came back, only good people go to heaven. Because the printer had thought he must have made a mistake. What's Paul telling us? Only bad people go to heaven by grace. By grace. But if we've been following this logic, the next question surely is, if doing good things doesn't make you right with God, do we need to do good things at all? 
Indeed, you could look at this in quite a perverse way and say, look, if grace abounds wherever sin springs up, then if I do more sin, surely that's an opportunity for God to show more grace, for God to show more opportunity to forgive. Uh, Isn't that something that God would want? He's more glorious, the biggest sinner that I am. I give God the opportunity to be more merciful wherever I sin, don't I? Well, that's the kind of twisted question here that opens chapter 6 of Romans. Shall we go on sinning? You can see that in verse 1 there. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And the question behind the question is, what's my motivation for obeying God? What's my motivation for doing good things since my salvation's not on the line? Since it's not simply to impress God, right? So it's not because I'm going to be good and therefore get into heaven that way. Since that's been taken away, why, why I'm not avoiding, I'm not trying to avoid judgment, then why bother? And Paul's answer is this. In Christ, you have become a new person. This means you've died to sin, firstly. Secondly, it means you are now alive to God. And thirdly, these two realities combined together give you a new motive to resist sin. And more than that, not just resist sin and hide away from any opportunities to do good in some quiet cul-de-sac, but indeed... Step onto the open highways of righteousness with everything you have. Not only is this true, but it also works. So, Paul tells us, I'm up to point two, that we have died to sin. He says this in a number of ways throughout our passage. He says it in verse two. He says, we are those who have died to sin. In verse three, he says, we've been baptized into Jesus' death and buried with him. In verse 5, we've been united with him in his death. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. That's in verse 6. And again, in verse 11, he says, we need to count ourselves dead to sin. What does he mean by this? It's certainly true that when we turn to Christ, sin no longer accuses us. We are forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But Paul means something else here too, or something more. When you're dead to something, you are no longer under its power. You have no longer have any connection to it or obligation to it. A little bit later on, Paul will use the example of, of a marriage where, sadly, if one partner dies, the other partner is freed from the covenant of marriage. They're now free to marry someone else. This is what happens to us in Christ. Sin no longer has any power over us as our master. It no longer rules in us. It no longer masters us. We are no longer slaves to sin. Well, you might say, well, hang on on a minute, how come I still sin? It's true for us that now sin wages a sort of guerrilla war, a guerrilla campaign against us, taking pot shots against it where it might. But even though sin is around, Paul tells us that reality is that it has been defeated. It's a vanquished enemy. It's been done with. It is not our master anymore so we do not need to submit to its dictates well how did we die to sin how does he imagine that this occurred 
Well, Paul uses the image of our baptism. Um, It's a little bit tricky for Anglicans because we get baptised at this font here, which is really just a little puddle of water, and we sprinkle it on. But uh, the original form of baptism was, in fact, to be immersed, and usually you use a river. Uh, I've done it down at uh, Redleaf Pool or at uh, at Shark Bay, Nielsen Park. I've done a baptism there. You can imagine a baptism happening there. And what we do there is that you actually push the baptisan, the person being baptised, under the water. And... It's a picture of a spiritual reality. It's an enactment, a dramatization of what's happening to us spiritually. We stand in the river, we go under, blah, 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 blah. And it's a bit like we're being drowned. It's a picture of death, in other words. The old self has died under the water. And here's the deep spiritual truth that it represents. When we believe the gospel, we are united with Christ... Remember back in Romans 5 where we're now no longer in Adam, the old self anymore. We're now in Christ. And whatever is true of Christ is true of us too. So the death that was due for us because of our sin has already been died for us by Christ. He has died for us so that we no longer are under sin's power. But I would say... This is one of the spiritual truths, you know, we find most difficult to believe. We're so impressed by the power of sin. Its, its power seems so dominant. We're reminded again and again of the weakness of our flesh and the tangled mess of our loves and our motives. Or at least we are, unless we're some kind of twisted narcissist. How can we ever let go of these things that have entwined themselves, burrowed themselves so deeply within us, These things we find so precious and hard to let go of. How could I ever make amends to those who I have hurt? And yet, said Paul, says Paul, you are not under sin's power anymore. More than that, on the cross, your old self was crucified with Christ. That's what he says in verse 6. Your old self was put to death there too. The old self, that self that was under sin's power in Adam... And the things that it did in the body have been done away with. What we see then on the cross is not just Jesus' death on our behalf for our sins, but our own deaths to sin. There we too are crucified, if you like. Jesus dies for our sins, but also puts our old selves to death. We see there our own death to sin. And what emerges from the death of the old self, is now a new self, now alive to God. If we've been crucified with Christ, then we need to remember that what also happened on the third day is a reality that exists for us too, since we are united with Christ. Christ rose from the dead. If we were buried with him in our... Our baptism symbolizes that going under, blah, 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 blah. Well, then, too, we'll come out of the, we'll, we'll come out of the grave. We will defeat death. And in baptism, of course, we don't leave the person under the water. We, they come up again as a new person. It's a sign of the resurrection power that we now live in. We were, he says in verse, Paul says in verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And it's a certainty. If we're united with him on the cross, then we will also be united with him in his resurrection. 
if our sins have been paid for, then also we will be given a new resurrection life. Now, this is really significant because you and I have now a new life to live. Our old self, ruled by sin, was crucified so that our new self can emerge full of good works and righteousness, full of a desire to do the things that God wants done in the world. It's a bit like the caterpillar and the butterfly. The death, so to speak, of the caterpillar, which can only crawl and eat, is needed for the emergence of the extraordinary flying creature of love that is the butterfly. The caterpillar goes into the cocoon, kind of turns into soup, and is reconstituted, remade. So it is with you and me. Our old self has died now. The new self has emerged. Of that you can be certain. Surely, says Paul in verse 8, if we died with Christ, we'll also live with him in, our, in his resurrection life. Death no longer has mastery over him. It's what we celebrate on Easter Day. Death has not held him down. He has risen triumphant from the grave. And that's not just a fact in history. That's a reality in which we live. That is true of us as well. His death is ours. His resurrection too is surely ours. That's what believing in the resurrection of Jesus means. When we believe that he rose, we are also believing in our own resurrection in him. And that that truth is now at work in us. So, says Paul, count yourselves dead to sin, but now alive to God. You are a new person with a new identity and a new power. So here are the motivations for resisting sin and living a righteous life. Firstly, it's authentically who you are. It's more true to yourself, more authentic, that you live this way. I mean, that's the common moral language of our times, isn't it? You do you. Do you. Be yourself. Well, here is, says Paul, yourself. If you do you by living to God, since that is who you are, so do you. Tim Keller, that was got complicated, didn't it? The real you is not a slave to sin, but alive to God. Timothy Keller says... If I sin, it is because I do not realize who I am. I've forgotten what has been done for me in Christ. Don't you know who you are? I mean, we use that as a sort of, that's a sort of very arrogant thing to say. Don't you know who I am? That's the sort of thing, you know, the, the police pulls over the, the politician or the, uh, the judge and uh, says, uh, you were speeding. And uh, the judge or the politician says, don't you know who I am? Well, we should say to sin. Don't you know who I am by Christ? This isn't who I am anymore. You have no power over me. Martin Luther was once assaulted by the devil in the castle in Wartburg. Uh, he was tormented by him while he was there and the devil appeared to him, so Martin Luther says, one night uh, while he was in bed and Luther says that he rolled over and said, oh, it's you. And that's our attitude, right? Not because Luther is some spiritual superpower of moral goodness, but because he's a new man. Sin can no longer have any power. In fact, it's absurd to think that we would live in sin now that we've died to sin. That's the note that Paul strikes in verse 2. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? There's something pathetic 
and stupid about returning to sin once we've been freed from it, going back to the mess we've been released from. Now, I've got my old school blazer in the cupboard. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm that guy. Uh, have the old school blazer. I look at it every now and again. Yeah, those were the days. And I, you know, I thought I could get a white shirt and tie and put on the uniform of my school. But what would you think of me? A grown man walking around in his high school uniform 35 years after he left school. What if I turned up at the gates and asked to be admitted to one of the classes? You'd either think I was the lead guitarist of ACDC or that I was very strange, more strange than you already know me to be. My years as a schoolboy are over. Why would I dress like it now? You've died to sin. So why do we keep going back to it? How can you live in it any longer? We shouldn't sin because it isn't who we are. But secondly, we should also sin because we have no need. We have every reason to resist sin now and live for God. Resistance is not futile. You may have given up because you found sin so persistent in coming back to you. It returns again and again. It's a nagging presence in our lives. But you now live the resurrection life. Sin no longer has power over you. You have no need to do it and your resistance is not futile. I was reading this week that J.R.R. Tolkien took 17 years to write The Lord of the Rings. And he didn't know whether it would be a success. In fact, it wasn't immediately a success. And I, I can, can't imagine embarking on a project for 17 years and not, one, not knowing whether anyone would read it. He had no idea that it would become a tourism ad for New Zealand and all the other things that it is famous for. I'm not sure that I would persist in something as long as that if I was not assured of the outcome. But in your resistance against sin, day by day, in little things as well as in large, you know what the outcome is. You know that it's worth it. You know that the victory is yours. And so Paul urges us to resist sin in these verses, verse 12 to 13. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Remember that language of reigning that we saw last week? The, the, the realm of sin, the realm of Adam, sin and death, and the realm of Jesus Christ, life and righteousness. Who are we now to obey? To what commander are we going to give our bodies? To what beat are we going to march? And the metaphor probably is a military one with the word, the word instrument in these next couple of verses, also meaning weapon, can mean weapon. So do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument, as a weapon of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer part, every part of yourself to him as a weapon, an instrument of righteousness. Do not let sin control you. Do not give over your body to sin to do its worst. The parts of yourself, your physical body, your, the time you have, the energy that you, you use, your agency, your will, these are not there to be used by sin to do its work. You're alive to God. So offer yourself to God in order to do what he wants done in the world, that he, you would be a weapon of his righteousness. Be, say, the sword in God's hand to do what he wants done in the world. Your body and your time 
are given to you so that you will do righteous and not wicked things. You've been justified so that you might, might now be an instrument of righteousness. And now in Christ you are freed from the evil desires that used to command you. So you don't need to listen to them anymore. You are free not to obey money or power or lust or fame or significance or any of the other idols that want your love or pitching for your devotion. You're free not to answer any of them. Now you do not obey evil desires, but are instead to be filled with the love of God. Well, you might say that's all very well, but I still have a very divided heart. When I come here each week and we confess together, there's always things to confess. Sin is very hard to eradicate because I'm just such a mixed bag of pride and fear and lust and shame and hatred and greed and anger. I'm vain and I'm insecure. What will help me? Paul would say that just telling you to be a better person won't work. The law of Moses was a good law, but it didn't change people's hearts. Indeed, where the law of Moses was preached, sin actually increased. Now, I I hope, by the way, you don't think that that's what we're doing when we come here each week, that you come here each week to get a moral lesson, to be told to behave. If you think that, I haven't been doing it right. That's not why we come here to get a moral lesson, because that wouldn't work. It doesn't work. We come here to be reminded again and again of who we are in Christ, to be reminded of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For that is what will shape us. That is what will change us. Now, a lot of people think, a lot of Christians think that even though we've been saved by grace, that the engine of our obedience is now more rules. And so you become a Christian and you've got about five minutes to enjoy grace. It's fantastic. And then we're going to show you the rules, right? So you're going to get back onto that. And uh, that will really suck the joy out of being a Christian. In fact, I've even heard people say that they've stopped being a Christian because they hated feeling guilty all the time. Paul would say, it's not the rules you need to know. You need to know who you really are. Don't you know who you are? You are not under law, he says in verse 14, but you are now under grace. The Christian life is lived entirely by grace, not by the law. So what motivates us to change? Knowing who we are by grace. That's why Paul tells us again and again in this passage that we need to know stuff. We need to know deep within us who we are. We need to know, for instance, that we've been baptised into Jesus' death, which means we also share in his resurrection life. We need to know that. We need to know that our old self was crucified with him and we are now no longer slaves to sin. We know, he says, that Christ was raised from the dead, which means that death and sin no longer rule him and so therefore no longer rule us. And we also need to think of ourselves as dead to sin but alive to God. That's what he says in verse 11. Count yourselves or reckon yourselves. Think of yourselves as dead to sin, but since you are, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. My dear family in Christ, this is what I so desperately want you to hear. This is Christ's medicine for us in our woes. 
It's his grace. The grace in which we stand. The grace by which we have new life. We are new people. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? I want you to care about sin in your life. Not to be flippant and not to justify your selfishness. I want you to see how absurd it is that Christians accept sin as routine, as a kind of banal inevitability. We just kind of will go on doing because uh, can't change, can't do anything else. I really want you to know who you are in Christ, dead to sin, but now alive to God. You serve sin no longer. Sin is no longer your master. Sin may snap at your heels, but in Christ, its head has been crushed. So offer your whole self, your whole self, to Jesus Christ as a weapon of his righteousness. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.